Alrighty, Psalm 54. Turn to the 54th Psalm. You ready to hear some preaching tonight? Say amen. amen. Of course, Pastor Tyler's been going through our Wednesday night series called Praying Through. And tonight we're going to talk about praying through treachery. When he assigned me this one, you know, the first thing I did was I looked up what the word treachery meant because I had no idea. Turns out it's uh, pretty synonymous with betrayal, which we talked about. I believe that was the first installment of Praying Through. Uh, even has some similarities with treason and some other ideas like that. If you think about treachery, betrayal, treason, really there's no more popular example of that than a guy named Benedict Arnold. Look at that dapper young man. I don't know if you can see him. His painted white face, those Revolutionary War paintings. Benedict Arnold was a pharmacist. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, he had a side business running trade with three family-owned ships in the West Indies. So he's a pretty wealthy man. And he moved uh, to America. And then when Great Britain imposed the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, uh, he started losing a little bit more money than he liked. And so like a lot of those revolutionaries, uh, he was a little upset about that. Taxation without representation, those type of things. And so here's what he decided to do. He said, you know what, I'm just going to join the cause and fight the British. And what happened is Benedict Arnold soon became one of their rising stars in the army. Took one rank up, another rank. And as he started rising to the top, he was a major general. He got a little bit upset and disenchanted because what had happened is some other guy had gotten a promotion over him. And then he looked around and he realized that here they were fighting this great cause and it seemed like that the country, uh, which was at that point a very young country, wasn't really doing much to fund it. In fact, if you read uh, history, a lot of these guys helped fund the war out of their own pockets. And uh, their supplies were pretty meager and uh, it was kind of a joke, honestly, the military they had at the time. So Benedict Arnold was pretty ticked off at his own country. And so what began as a guy who was trying to fight uh, Great Britain, he then turned in the guy trying to help Great Britain beat the U.S. And so as luck, maybe, would have it, uh, he was placed in charge of a fortress. You might know this location at West Point, very strategic area. And so Benedict Arnold thought, this is my opportunity. I can cash in a little bit. And so he started writing letters to a British uh, captain in the Navy, I believe. And this is some crazy stuff. They were using like invisible ink. I mean, this guy was going all out, being secretive, trying to make a deal. And here's the deal he made. He uh, sold himself out to the British Army for the, US, for the uh, current equivalent of $1 million dollars. And his plan was about ready to go through, and he's going to let them capture West Point, which would have been a really strategic advantage in the war. But bad luck happened to Benedict Arnold. God was on the side of the USA. I don't know if it was God or not, but I'm guessing it was. And they captured the guy he wrote the letter to. And Benedict Arnold, who was one of the esteemed generals in the U.S. Army, is now known as one of the most famous examples of treachery 
and treason. In fact, if you go to West Point, which is where he commanded, there's a place called the Old Cadet Chapel. And all throughout the chapel, they have plaques honoring the names of all the generals in the Revolutionary War. And conveniently in a place that students can access is a, uh, a plaque that used to have the name of Benedict Arnold. But over the years, all the West Point students out of disrespect for this guy who turned on his nation, have scratched his name out of the plaque. And here you have the blank, nameless plaque that was supposed to be Benedict Arnold's. Treason is probably the highest form of crime in the U.S. military, and there's a reason for that, right? I mean, there's nothing worse than turning on your own nation. Why? Because in a war, there's a lot on the line. Would you agree with that? Like, there's a lot on the line. Uh, the U.S. military had a lot staked in Benedict Arnold that he was going to command his, his part of the army well. And so when you turn on your nation, that is the highest form of crime because you really just really did something bad to your nation. But it's one thing to talk about treachery or treason against a nation in an example that happened almost 300 years ago. But it's a whole other thing when someone turns on you. It's a whole nother thing to talk about when you had a lot on the line and someone you thought you could rely on and someone you thought you could trust in and yet they turned on you. In Psalm 54, the background is actually that very thing happening in David's life. The context for this psalm comes out of 1 Samuel 23. Like many of the psalms, David was on the run from Saul when he wrote them. This would have been, I think, in a lot of ways where God was shaping David's heart and really maybe even the peak spiritual point of David's life where he really was close to God in a way that we may not see in the rest of his life as he's running from Saul. And if you read in 1 Samuel 23, David's on the run from Saul and kind of out of the blue, David gets word from a messenger that the people of Keilah were under attack. Now, Probably your first reaction to the people of Keilah being under attack might have been David's first reaction. Who cares? <laughs> My life is in danger. But David prays about it, and God impresses on David's heart, hey, you should go bail them out. And so David, with this small military um, who had you know, some really impressive fighters in it. They go in and they bail out the people of Keilah and they save the day. They defeat the Philistines who are their arch rivals. And David is the hero once again. I mean, he saved their bacon, man. And you know how the people of Keilah paid him back? Not with a lot of money. They gave old King Saul a ring. Say, hey, I know you're looking for this guy, David. I know where he is. And so David finds out that Saul's looking for him and David and his men escape narrowly in the night. And what happens in 1 Samuel 23 is they run from the city of Keilah and they run into this wooded area near Ziph. You ever heard of Ziph? Neither have I. It's in the middle of nowhere. But interestingly enough, uh, if you study it, the area of Ziph, it's in Judah. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. That's David's homeland. Like the people who lived in Ziph would have been like David's like third or fourth or fifth cousins, right? These are people who are related to him. And not to mention the fact that there's some national pride in the tribe that you're from. And you don't just do something wrong to someone who's in your tribe, for goodness sakes. And so here's David and his men, and they're camping out in the woods near Ziph. 
And wouldn't you know it, the Ziphites do the same thing to David that the people of Keilah did. They give Saul a ring. Uh, they, they didn't call him, but you know, they wrote a letter and sent a message. And sure enough, once again, David is turned over to Saul. L listen, church, here's the crazy thing about this. David did nothing wrong. David had chances to kill Saul. David bailed out the people of Keilah when he had no reason to. And they betrayed him. And then he flees to his homeland and his own people betray him. And here's David in the midst of a place that he should have considered a source of safety. Are you with me? He should have thought he was safe. But yet the very place that David trusted to be his source of safety became a source of treachery. Have you been there? Has there been a time in your life where you thought you were safe with somebody? When you thought you could trust somebody, but they turned on you. The person you thought could protect you, abused you. The spouse you trusted as a source of safety, turned into a source of betrayal. The parents you wished would support you, distanced themselves from you. The people you thought you could trust with very sensitive information turned it on you and made it into a story of gossip and even lied about you. Maybe someone you loved gave into addiction. And when you thought you could trust them, oh, they would never do that to me. They did it. They stole from you. They lied to you. They mistreated you. The person you thought had your back took advantage of you. Hey, I've been in ministry long enough, talked to enough people. Sometimes it's a pastor. Thank God it's not our pastor, I hope. I've never heard any stories like that, but I hear people come to our church. Yeah, I don't know if I want to join church because last time I joined church, the pastor did this. You ever heard of someone who ran into situations like that? Man, the people you thought you could trust turn into a source of treachery. And here's the question tonight. How do we pray through that? I mean, if you've, I'm looking at the faces of people like you've experienced this. And, and I, I can speak from personal testimony, some of those situations, that there, is, there are a few things more devastating in life when someone you thought you could trust turns on you. And so here's the question tonight. How do we pray through that? Well, I'm thankful that David gives us a good example. Hey, can I remind you that when David wrote Psalm 54 that we're about to study, like it, it wasn't like a metaphorical, like his life was in danger. Like, you know, sometimes our emotions are put in danger and our emotions are at risk. But David, like Saul was on the other side of a mountain trying to kill him. And yet David writes this Psalm. And here's what we're gonna learn tonight. And here's what I wanna show you out of Psalm 54 we're going to talk about three simple thoughts on how we can pray through treachery. Here's the first one. If you want to pray through treachery, here's what you do. Bring your situation before God. Bring your situation before God. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Here's what David says. I love this. He just gets right into it. Like he doesn't say, dear heavenly father. You know what David says? He says, save me, O God. 
by thy, strength, by thy name and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ears to the words of my mouth, for strangers are risen up against me. And oppressors seek after my soul. They have not yet set God before them. Notice how David didn't spend time on like some fancy introductory prayer formula. You know, I talk to a lot of people in the First Steps class, and sometimes we talk about prayer. And a lot of times when I speak with Christians about prayer, it's like, well, I don't know what to say. You know, you know I hear someone stand up and pray, and, you know, we can be guilty of this. We use vain repetitions, and we say words that really don't mean anything, but they sound really fancy and spiritual. And, we're like, and people, new Christians are like, man, I don't know how to say all that. You know what I'm thankful for? David didn't have to say fancy words. His life was in danger, and he just said, save me, oh God. You know, if you don't know how to pray, just bring your situation to God. God, this person mistreated me. Hey, that's just as biblical of a prayer as our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And David brings his situation before God. And and notice the tone of desperation. There's a lot on the line. The situation was urgent. David thought his life was about to end. And all he could muster up was to pray up to God and say, God, would you save me? God, would you judge me by my integrity? Because you look at the lives of the people who are oppressing me and they're evil men and they hate you. And God, I've done nothing but try to honor you. God, would you judge my character and save me? He brought his situation before God. And I'm thankful that sometimes, you know, God understands that all we can do is just muster up the strength and say, God, would you help me through this situation? Church, can I just encourage you tonight, when trouble comes your way, hey, don't overthink it. Don't overthink prayer. Just bring your situation before God. Because guess what? You have a loving Heavenly Father who wants to hear your prayers. And even better than that, he doesn't just want to hear your prayers. He wants to help you through that situation. Hey, God is willing and available to help you. You have a loving Heavenly Father. You have Jesus as your friend. You have God as your Father. Jesus is your intercessor and your mediator. You are called a joint heir with Christ. Listen, you have all the grounds in the world to bring your situation before God. And know that he is listening and that he cares. I love what Romans 8.26 says. Listen to this. I don't have it on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen. Paul said this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. I love this. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You know, a lot of people like to use that verse to say that people pray in this heavenly language. You know what the verse is actually saying? That there are some times in life when your life is in such bad circumstances and your heart is so broken and crushed that you don't even have the words to pray to God. But you know what? If you're a child of God and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you may not be able to articulate your prayers, but the Spirit says, hey, God, let me pass on what they're feeling in their heart. Man, I'm thankful for that. I can think about times where that's all I could do. It's just cry out to God because my life just seemed like it had come crashing down around me. And yet God was there in that moment and he understood what was in my heart. Church, you may not know what to say to God, but here's what you can remember. You could just bring your situation before God. And you know what, I I really believe that the reason why God puts this in scripture so much 
is not because God needs to know the details of your situation. You know God knows the details of your situation. He knows. Hey, listen, he knew that person was going to do you wrong before you ever did. But I think in some ways it's good for us to stop and just lay it out before God. Sometimes I've thought things were really big and they weren't, but just by me bringing the situation before God, God calmed my heart and said, well, that's not a big deal, is it? But sometimes there's something so comforting, isn't there, to just lay, lay things out before God. Because if I bring it before this person, they may judge me, they may say that, they may take that information and spread it, but if I bring it before God, God won't judge me. God understands my heart. God understands my motives when other people may not understand. And so can I encourage you tonight, church, if you're going through the fire tonight, listen, you don't have to worry if, if, if you have the right words. Just bring your situation before God, and he's ready, and he's willing to listen to you. David brought a situation before the Lord. I wonder how many of us face the tragedy of treachery And we know we ought to bring our prayers before God and our situation before God, but we miss out on the comfort God has for us because we do something else with our burdens. I wonder if there's someone tonight that they're feeling the weight of a burden and you're carrying a burden you shouldn't have to carry because you've never taken it to God in prayer. And it just weighs on you. Or sometimes I think, Pastor Tyler, what we do is we, because it's easy, and maybe for some of our personalities, we just talk. And so we'll go to this person, and we'll go to this person. You know, I have to go to so many people because those people can't do for us what God can do for us. And so we go and we go and we go and, oh, I'm burdened and life is so hard. But yeah, we never bring those things before God. I wonder if God wants to relieve you of some burdens that are weighing on your life because you haven't brought them to him yet. Bring your situation before God. But what amazes me about David so much is that as we see in the Psalms, he's so real with God, like he's so authentic with God about his situation. But yet I want you to notice in verse number four, it's like something catches David's attention. Like he's just weeping and crying out to God about how messed up his situation was. Like, it's not good enough that Keilah turned on him, but now he's in the woods of Ziph and these other people who are his family turn on him. And look at verse number four. Look what he says. He says, behold, behold, God is mine helper. You know what David shows us in verses four through five? Don't just bring your situation before God, but here's the, here's the real key, church. Bring God before your situation. Hey, listen, don't just get caught up in the details of your circumstances, but remember the theology about your creator. Remember who God is. And that's what David shows us so much in the book of Psalms, that that he always had something in his mind that he always brought it back to who God was in his situation. He says, God is mine helper. Now, in the English language in 2020, helper isn't the most flattering term sometimes. Like, helper is what we call Natalie when she wants to help Shelby bake a cake, but really it's just making sure our three-year-old doesn't eat butter. (laughs) Right? Helper is the person that, like, they help, but they're not doing the actual job. Like, when I was at Alfred's church plant, I was the helper. Like, 
hey, Mike, can you bring a tile? Like, I had no idea how to lay, t-. so I was the helper, right? You all know what that's like, I'm sure, in different contexts. A helper's not, you know, a very flattering or important term in our language. But in Hebrew, the idea of helper, and you might write this in your Bible, write it in your notes, it's a military ally. It's a military ally. And if you study this word out, all the times it shows up in the Old Testament, it's the person who bailed you out when you thought you were going to lose the war. You ever watch those movies and it's like the Western, they're like, oh no, you know, they're about to get taken down. And then like this whole range of people come over the hills and they rescue them in the battle. That's the idea of the helper. It's the person who came to your rescue, the person who's got your six, the person who's your backup when things are really bad and they come in and they save the day and they intervene in the battle just when you thought you were about to lose. David says this, God is mine helper. I want you to think about this. David was outnumbered probably like 10 to one or more than that. Like his military compared to Saul's military was really pathetic. I mean, it was like the Spanish-American War. I mean, it was really, really pathetic. Sorry, historical joke. (laughs) That's really nerdy, huh? Gee, help me, Pastor Tyler. He was outnumbered. And I want to think that maybe as David is recording this prayer, this song, I, I love how sometimes those things just overlap. That David is reminding himself that he doesn't need to have physical military allies because on his side is the God of all armies. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords happens to be his helper, his military ally. And while on the other side of the mountain is a king who has the armies of Israel at his disposal, David could look and say, hey, I may not have many men in my military, but I have Yahweh God and he's on my side and he's going to intervene in this battle and he's going to fight for my victory. And aren't there times, church, when we come up against forces that seem so much more powerful than us? I mean, what can we do about someone who's in the bonds of addiction? You know what? Pretty much nothing. I mean, how many of you have felt so powerless when someone you love has been wrapped up in something like that? We come up against spiritual struggles that beat us every single time. People who have authority and influence more than we do. Things that seem overwhelmingly powerful, but isn't it comforting to know that when everything seems like it's against you, and when it feels like you're outnumbered, that you can claim like David, God is my helper. God is my military ally. And listen, that doesn't always guarantee the victory in the temporal sense that we wish it would, but it does mean in an eternal sense, God will always get the victory. And God is on, he's on the side of righteousness every single time. Here's what moves me about David's prayer. And here's what helps me. Is that every time David faced really bad circumstances, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. Every time David faced overwhelming circumstances, here's what he would do. He would put those circumstances that he was facing in the context of the creator he was serving. And church, can I just encourage you to do one thing? When life seems to overwhelm you, to put the circumstances you are facing in context with the creator you serve. 
Because life can seem so overwhelming and so overpowering when we just look at the circumstances alone. But yet David models for us not just to bring our situation to God, but to bring our situation in the context of who God is. And when we start to think about who God is, the circumstances we face can seem a lot more palatable. And David says, God is my helper. You know, David recognized that God doesn't just help us in this mysterious, like, way. Yes, God channels his grace in ways that we don't understand. But you know what's also true? Is God has a knack for using people in our lives to help us when we face overwhelming circumstances, doesn't he? Actually, that's what David acknowledged. Look at verse number four. He says, the Lord is with them. I'm finding it. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. The Lord is with them. See, David recognized that God's help and strength in times of trouble wasn't just channeled through some unknown force. No, God uses people. And the idea of those who uphold my soul, it's like David's leaning on a crutch. And David's saying that my spirit is sometimes so cast down and so weak, I need a crutch. And sometimes that crutch is someone who comes to uphold my soul. You know, what's amazing is actually, if you read 1 Samuel 23, God did this for David and a guy named Jonathan. You say, well, how did God help David? Well, here's a funny one. Saul couldn't find David in the woods of Ziph, but Jonathan somehow did. If you don't think God was on David's side, you better reread 1 Samuel 23. God was doing something supernatural there. And Jonathan seeks out David, and maybe God, you know, just, I don't know how he figured out his way through the woods, but he found David. I don't know if David was scared out of his mind, like, who's this stepping through the branches? But he finds out it's Jonathan. It's his best friend. And I love the, the wording of 1 Samuel 23. I believe it's verse number 19. It says that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. It means that Jonathan strengthened his faith in God. If you read that, it, here's what Jonathan did. He reminded David the promises that God had given him. He says, hey, listen, David, I know the circumstances of your life seem to point against this, but let me remind you that God has promised you would be the next king of Israel. And it doesn't matter how close Saul is. It doesn't matter how small the mountain that he's on the other side is. God has promised you'd be the next ruler, and God will see his promise through. He reminded David of the promises of God. And he reminded David of the commands of God. And then what he did is he reaffirmed his personal commitment to David. He said, David, hey, listen, my dad may be crazy and he may be trying to kill you, but let me just promise you again, I ain't gonna, I'm not gonna betray your location like Keilah and Ziph did. I'm not gonna turn against you. Trust me, I've got your back, but let me just speak into your life a little bit. You're worried, you're stressed out, you're, you're worried that your life is gonna be taken from you, but can I remind you that God has already spoken into this situation and he's promised that you're the next ruler and, and then Jonathan departs. And I wonder if it was after that encounter with Jonathan that David was able to look and write down on his notepad, God is my helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. Church, aren't you thankful for some Jonathans that come into our lives? Man, I can look back on, on some situations in my life and I can look around and I can see some Jonathans. 
And, and they didn't just minister to my physical needs or they didn't just, you know, send me a text, hey, I care about you. There, there are times where they said, hey, let me remind you what God has to say about this. And here's what they did. They pointed me towards God. But you know what I'm burdened about tonight is that as a church family, would to God that we would want to be a Jonathan. And isn't it true, church, that we can get so caught up with our circles and with our schedules and with our task lists and with our dinner plans after church and with the fact that we're tired and that we, you know, it's Wednesday night, that we can miss out on Jonathan moments. We can miss out on them. If you want to know what the church is about, the church is about some Jonathan moments. Hebrews talks about provoking people to love and good works. What's that? That's a Jonathan moment. And church, can I exhort you to just look up, look around you, and come to church looking for an opportunity to be a Jonathan in somebody's life. Aren't you thankful we have a God who cares enough about us to place Jonathans all around us? that want to care for us and minister to us and lift up our soul when it seems like we're so cast down we need a crutch. Then what David does, look at verse number five. He reminds himself of God's just character. He says, he shall reward evil unto mine enemies. And then he gets real bold. He says, cut them off in thine truth. It's kind of like the psalm that Pastor Tyler preached a few weeks ago on injustice. Here's what David's doing. He's reminding himself that God is just and that God will, will uh, enact justice on evil. And in David's circumstance, these were evil men coming after him. These were men who didn't love God. These were men who were against God. These were men who were against God's purposes. And David knew, hey, God's gonna deal with this. And he was so, so sure of that. He said, God, cut them off in thy truth. You know, maybe we ought to remind ourselves sometimes is that when people mistreat us and when people come against us and hurt us, church, can I remind you that God has a way of dealing with evil? Come on now, God has a way of dealing with evil. And I'm not just talking in the broad sense like Pastor Tyler talked about a week or two ago when evil is around us in the world in a very macro sense. But can I remind you that when evil men do something to God's children, God has promised he will deal with it. And even when Christians do something, that is evil against you. God has a way of dealing with them. They're his own children, for goodness sakes. If one of your kids messes with another kid, you as mom or daddy have a way of dealing with it, don't you? And the kids don't always understand, do they? They don't always see it. But you as a parent, you know, and you're involved in that situation, and you're looking out for them. Listen, can I remind you that God is looking out for your situation, and that when people are against you, and when people mistreat you, and when evil seems to prevail, let me promise you, God will deal with it. And he'll do with it in his time. And this pops up all throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you want to read a good book on how God deals with evil in his time, it's a really fun one. It's called Revelation. And sometimes we read the book of Revelation, we get caught up in timelines and, you know, the, the horsemen and the, you know, the vile judgments. It's like, whoa, this is some weird stuff. But you know what Revelation is really all about? It's God riding to seven churches who are dealing with some pretty messed up stuff. And some of their pastors got killed by evil people and their churches were being shut down by evil people. And here's what God is saying in the book of Revelation. I will deal with it. It just might not be in your time. So listen, when that, someone, that person mistreats you, God will deal with it just might not be in your time. 
And so when someone mistreats you, and someone betrays you, hey, bring God before your situation. It's so comforting to know, because as people don't, we want to take advantage of the situation. We want, we want to take it in our own hands and say, I'll deal with this, God. But how much would we be helped if we just brought God before a situation and say, you know what, God is a just God. And he's going to deal with evil a whole lot better than I can. Here's what David did. He brought a situation before God. He brought God before his situation. But as God fills his mind, I want you to look at verse 6, six through 7. Here's what David does. He brings his praise before God. Now, keep in mind, David's still running for his life. Like Saul could come around the corner any minute and stab him. And here's what David writes. He says, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me. Hey, what tense is that word in? Miss Kay, what tense is it? <laughs> Past tense, right? Now there's some debate. Did David write this during or after? I, I really believe that maybe he wrote this or his thoughts were formulated during this time, here's what David's doing. He's praising God, not because his circumstances have changed, but he's so confident in who God is and that God was going to intervene in a situation that he said, I'm going to express my praise to God. And here's what he says, I'm going to express it tangibly. Now, pay attention to the words. He says, I will freely, what's the next word, church? Sacrifice. You know, that, that, that's like a literal term. He's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to go find me a lamb. And it's a, it's, what it's speaking of is a voluntary offering. So God had some required offerings of his people, but David says, you know what? I'm so confident God's going to intervene in my situation. I'm going to find me another lamb. Now, I don't know if that stirs your soul like it does me, but here's, here's what David's saying. He's saying, hey, God may not have changed my circumstances, but I'm still going to praise him tangibly. I'm still going to give him my life. I'm still going to put in to my faith with God because He's already promised that he's going to do something in my situation. And listen, you may not be motivated tonight to go grab another lamb. That's probably a bad idea. But listen, can I encourage you and exhort you that even may, maybe God hasn't changed your circumstances, but can you continue to serve him? Because God hasn't changed just because your circumstances have. Hey, if God was worthy of you serving him in a church context before your circumstances got messed up, I think God's still worthy of it. Come on now. If God was worthy of you sacrificing financially before someone mistreated you, hey, God's still worthy of that. But yet so often as church people, what we can do is life comes at us and people do us wrong and all of a sudden we start trying to blame God for it. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, gonna, show, I'm gonna show that person. I'm gonna stop giving to God. Well, that makes a lot of sense. They said, no, I'm gonna freely sacrifice unto you, God, because I know your character. And I'm not even sure if David understood that, that God was going to physically deliver him. Maybe he didn't, but he knew God was still good. He says, I'll freely sacrifice. But look at the next line of verse number six. He says, and I will, what's the next word? Praise, Praise thy name, for it is good. You know, your praise doesn't have to be predicated on your salvation. God doesn't have to change your circumstances for him to be worthy of your praise. You know when God's worthy of your praise, if you can answer this, is God still your ally? Yeah. Is God still just? Yeah. 
Is God still trying to work through the lives of people to uphold your soul? Yeah. And God deserves your praise. So how do we pray through treachery? Well, we bring our situation before God. David said, save me, O God. And he just laid it out before God. But then what David did is he brought God before his situation. He allowed uh, the circumstances he was facing to be put in context with the creator he served. And he reminded himself of who God was. Because sometimes circumstances can overwhelm us so much that we get lost in the details of our circumstances and we forget the greatness of our God. And David said, let me remind myself of who God is. And then here's what David did. He praised God for his future deliverance. God hadn't changed anything yet. But David still praised him. 